I am so glad to be here, honored to be here, glad to be with your pastor who is a good friend, and uh, more than that, he is a good man of God, and uh, I am delighted to have this opportunity to come and share with you. I'm also delighted to see my wife, who has come for the second service, who did not make it to the first service. Uh, She woke up this morning and she said, Honey, I hardly slept at all last night, just couldn't sleep. And I said, Well, you sweetheart, you just lay right there and sleep a little longer and you come on to the 11 o'clock service. You've heard that sermon I'm going to do a number of times. Uh, And that reminds me of an experience where we were at a conference one time and uh, I had preached at that conference five times that day. And so you can imagine at the end of that conference, I was somewhat exhausted and tired. And uh, to my shame, while walking with my wife to the car, I irritably snapped at her. And she put me in my place real quick and said, don't you talk to me like that. And I said, honey, I am so sorry. I apologize. I said, but I'm tired. I'm so tired and exhausted. I had to preach five times today. And she said, that ain't nothing. I had to listen to you five times today. (laughs) And she is so right. I want to talk to you briefly about the ministry of the Christian Action League of North Carolina. For those of you who don't know, that ministry is a Christian public policy organization that has been in existence in our state now. Uh, for more than 70 years, birthed by the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. Uh, And currently, we're representing conservative evangelical churches from at least 16 uh, different denominations in our state. We are in the General Assembly of North Carolina with a full-time presence promoting legislation that is consistent with a Christian worldview, We advocate for those measures that strengthen the family and we oppose any kind of legislation that would erode the family structure. We are, mind you, your voice, the voice of conservative evangelical Christians in the state legislature. We're on the front line combating the gambling industry and all of their highly paid lobbyists to bring more legalized gambling to our state. We discourage the promotion and use of beverage alcohol and other drugs, pornography, sexual immorality, and other evils that undermine our culture. We also provide educational materials as well as to help communities form coalitions to address these evil influences. I want to take the opportunity this morning to personally invite you to hitch up your wagon with ours, if you will, And one of the ways that you can do that simply is by allowing us to put you on our email list. If you have a personal computer, our email will send to you every week a report about the latest and most significant events in the culture war today and specifically how those events apply to North Carolina. And many times we'll suggest some action that you can take to make a positive impact for Christ upon our lawmakers or upon some other situation. Furthermore, I want to encourage you to visit our website, which you can find at www.christianactionleague.org. 
Our website is like a daily newsletter of statewide concerns. Now, whether you've got a personal computer or not, we'd also like to start sending to you other critical mailings that usually highlight some need uh, of some matter in need of urgent attention. Our mass mail-outs are for people who can't get our information via the computer. And these mail-outs are always about some social or moral issue that every Christian in North Carolina needs to know and pray about. I trust that you have a flyer where you can sign up for these two services. They are for free. It's an excellent way to keep you informed about uh, what lawmakers are doing in the General Assembly of North Carolina. But more importantly, it will provide for you a way that you can plug in and have an influence upon the process. And that's very important in our day and time. So I want to encourage you, if you will, to take that flyer, fill it out, give us your email as well as your mailing address, and get it back to me today before you leave. Let me also say that the Christian Action League has an incredible task, and we need and covet your prayers more than anything else. As I told the other worshiping body this morning, I served as a pastor for 20 years before taking this current position with the Christian Action League, and I think you would agree with me that any pastor worth his salt oftentimes finds himself on the hot seat. He finds himself in a very challenging position. If I may garner your sympathies for me for just a moment, let me tell you, my friends, in all my 20-year tenure as a Baptist pastor, I never found myself on the hot seat quite like I do today. Because you see, it becomes my duty, it is incumbent in this job, that I stand before Senate committees and House committees of the North Carolina General Assembly and do something which is a unique ministry. I do something which essentially nobody else is really doing in all of those halls of power. I tell those lawmakers what God's Word says about the legislation that they're considering. And most of the time when I do that, I stand all by myself. There's not even another person in the room who will say amen to what I've said. But there likely will be about five or six other lobbyists from the radical left who will stand up after me and try to take apart everything that I just said and even seek to make a buffoon of me. But what amazes me over and again, despite the seeming overwhelming obstacles that we face, is that by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, over and again, with respect to some of the most critical issues of our time, we win the day. And we win the day, I believe, quite often because God is with this ministry and because good folk like you all know about our ministry and you are praying for us. We covet your prayers more than anything. But let me add very quickly that we can't do what we do without your financial support. That too is a necessity. And I trust that you will remember that this work is strategic to the moral climate of our state. 
Well, thank you so much for allowing me to present to you this word. Now I want to present to you the word, which is the most important duty that I have before you today. So I'll ask you, if you will, to turn to two great texts of Scripture. The first coming from Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 28. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And then once you've found that text, if you will... Mark it somehow with your finger or with a bookmark, whatever, however you choose to do it. But just hold that and then look over to Matthew chapter 28, where we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Now, while you're looking for that text, I want to be transparent with you this morning by acknowledging that This message today has been drawn from, even directly at times, various writings by Dr. D. James Kennedy, and more specifically his book, Led by the Carpenter, as well as Why You Can't Stay Silent by Tom Minnery. Hold those texts, if you will. I'm not going to read them at the top of this message, but refer to them later as a part of the body of this message. But for now, at least for my sake, if you will, would you bow with me once more? For a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, genuinely thankful for this opportunity to be here today. Thank you that our help allows us to be here with God's people. Thank you that we're living in a place, Lord, where we have liberty to be here and nobody's trying to, to, to keep us from coming here together. But Lord, we recognize that All of what's said and done here won't count for eternity unless we have the presence of your Holy Spirit and your power manifest in our midst. And that is what we earnestly ask for. We ask that today you would give your people ears to hear, eyes to see, grace to rightly apply the word of truth. Lord, stir us to righteousness today and advance your kingdom through us. This we ask for Christ's sake and all God's people said. When Jewish psychiatrist Viktor Frankl was arrested by the Nazis during World War II, he was stripped of everything, his property, his family, his possessions. He'd spent years researching and writing a book on the importance of finding meaning in life. When he arrived in Auschwitz, that infamous death camp, even his manuscript, which he'd hidden in the lining of his coat, was taken away from him. I had to undergo and overcome the loss of my spiritual child, Frankel wrote. Now it seemed as if nothing or no one would survive me neither a physical nor a spiritual child of my own. I found myself confronted with the question of whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. After a profound spiritual experience and survival of the Nazi concentration camp, Frankel reflected on his ordeal and wrote in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning. 
There is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is meaning to one's life. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. You and I, my friends, are rational and conscious beings. And we cannot live without a sense of meaning and purpose to our lives. Whether it is clearly understood or implicit, everything that we do is activated and motivated by a sense of purpose. Whether our purpose is evil and debased, noble and exalted, whether it is a conscious purpose or a hidden and unconscious drive, every act of human life is colored through and through with a sense of purpose. And so it becomes incredibly important that in a moment such as this we pause and reflect And ask ourselves that most pointed of life's questions. What is the purpose for my life? What is it that gives my life its meaning? You know, Pastor, I suspect that if I asked 50 people here this morning that question, I would likely get 50 different answers. And each of those answers most likely would suffer from a single deficit. They would all be partial answers. But there is one complete, absolute, all-encompassing answer to the question of human purpose and meaning. God's answer to the question of human purpose and meaning centers around two great mandates that he's given us in his word. A mandate, of course, is a directive or a command that points us in a specific direction. And the first of God's two great mandates is referred to by many scholars as the cultural mandate. and It's found at the very beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1, Verses 26 through 28 where we read, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, my friends, let me tell you something This is a text that we rarely hear referenced in any sermon, but I tell you it is a text with profound meaning and ramifications. For here we see in this Bible verse that God had a discussion with himself within the confines of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit 
God makes the decision. And he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, this was God's original intention, to make human beings in his own image. And then the Bible says that God blessed human beings and he made them his vice regents. That is, his co-rulers over his creation with authority given by him to act in his name and in his stead. And God instructs human beings, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth and I want you to subdue it. Have dominion over all of it. We are, in effect, God's junior partners. And He has given us the responsibility to have dominion and sovereignty over all the earth in the name of the living God. And this mandate, I suggest to you, is still in force today. God has never revoked it. He never repealed it. And as the vice regents of God, we are to bring His truth and His will to bear upon every sphere of our world and society. We are to bring that godly influence to bear over our neighborhoods, our schools, our government, our literature and our arts, our sports arena, our entertainments, our news media, our scientific endeavors. In short, over every aspect and intrusion of human society, God has commanded us to advance and to have dominion. My friends, have you considered the current state of affairs? Allow me to paraphrase a column written some time ago by Jan Ireland that I think succinctly describes the situation. She writes, The Ten Commandments have been shunted from public view. At the same time, Madonna open mouth kisses young girls on a national stage. The judge displaying a monument of the Ten Commandments has lost his job while Madonna currently mocks the crucifixion of Christ in her concerts. The Pledge of Allegiance declared unconstitutional by the Ninth Circuit Court because of the phrase under God. And have you noticed, strangely, that in our public schools, Christmas vacation has now turned to winter break? Muslim children have to be accommodated with special times and places to pray in school. But don't you let a Christian try the same thing. The ACLU defends the North American Man-Boy Love Association. That, my friends, is an organization that advocates pedophilia. But they sue some Christians if they wear a cross. An interfaith group calls for the removal of all crosses in America since they say the cross supposedly stands for bigotry, suffering, and exclusion. 
Never mind that what the cross really stands for is what built America. The National Education Association seemingly today wants our children virtually from birth so that they may, I suggest, be inculcated with an agenda that essentially teaches that all morals are relative, all truth claims are equally valid. The United States Supreme Court rules that sodomy ought to be a constitutionally protected right. And conservative federal judges are most difficult to get appointed to our courts because they might interpret the Constitution according to our founding fathers' original intent and not as a living, malleable document. Yes, my brethren, I tell you, I've been sharing this message all over North Carolina and in other places out of state, and I won't apologize for saying it. Our society, our culture is desperately in need of reshaping. And we must exercise that godly influence at this critical juncture of our history. We must not abdicate and relegate society to the control of the dark and bloody God of this world, Satan himself. For in doing so, we share in the blame of God being robbed of his rightful glory in the world which he made and belongs to him. Ah, but someone says, well, Mark, I'm in much agreement with many of the things which you've said. But all those issues that you were just talking about are political matters, political issues. And as a Christian, I'm just personally of the belief that involvement in politics by the church will hinder its efforts at evangelism. Well, that brings me to the second great mandate given by God. The first mandate was given at the dawn of creation. The second, the great commission, was given at the dawn of the new creation, at the very beginning of the Christian era, soon after the resurrection of our Lord. And we find it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where we read, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Now, this is very important. I hope you'll stay with me at this point of the message because you see there's a connection here. I don't know when we started to see these two great mandates, the cultural mandate and the great commission as isolates, but we did. Nevertheless, the, these two great mandates, the cultural mandate and the great commission, should not be seen as isolates, but they should be seen for what they are and meant to be. They complement one another. In his book, Earth Restored, John Barber, I believe, best describes the relationship between the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, where he writes, God intends the cultural mandate to serve as his directive to redeemed man to maintain the order that God has placed in his world, better enabling all men to seek the truth 
It's in this sense of upholding and conserving the creation in its balance and design that the cultural mandate serves the Great Commission. For where there is a lack of order, men are preoccupied with that non-order. But where there is peace, men are free to discern the meaning behind their liberty. They are free to both hear and respond to the call of God upon their lives. Now what does that mean? What is Barber saying there? Well, for those of you who may have struggled with that academic quote, let me put it in the vernacular for you. He is simply saying this. In other words, evangelism, bringing people to Jesus Christ, is the means by which redeemed persons are recruited to transform society. And the cultural mandate is the means of reshaping society in order to produce the best environment for people to come to Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Thank you, darling. Let me point out that many times throughout history, great advances of the gospel of Jesus Christ have begun as controversial public political crusades. If time permitted me this morning, I could talk at length about John Wesley. Wesley, the great Methodist evangelist and reformer, tackled some of the most difficult and controversial political issues of his time. Issues like forced child labor, indentured servitude, slavery, rampant drunkenness, the poor health of the peasant class, prison abuse, and lack of education for the exploited poor. Now, not everybody appreciated Wesley's views at first. Yet, Wesley's combination of evangelistic zeal and social action resulted in literally thousands upon thousands of people coming to Jesus Christ and a great awakening in his day. And Wesley's efforts also set the stage for another evangelical by the name of William Wilberforce who led a peaceable 20-year campaign in Parliament to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire in 1833. And then 30 years after that, Wesley's work would inspire the founder of the Salvation Army, William Booth. William Booth was very political in a number of campaigns for righteousness, such as his petition drive in London to raise the age of sexual consent for women. I could also mention some modern-day spiritual giants. Men like the late, great Dr. B. James Kennedy of Coral Ridge Ministries in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dr. James Dobson of Focus on the Family and Southern Baptist-owned Dr. Richard Lamb of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Men who have combined winning people to Jesus Christ with cultural impact and they have had a profound effect on our nation's moral and spiritual climate. No, my friends, I'm trying to tell you something very important here. Speaking out on controversial political issues doesn't hinder the gospel. Most often it is the springboard for presenting Jesus Christ to the masses and advancing the kingdom of God. 
in a short article that moves fluidly between the basics of the Christian faith and the moral causes that emanate from the faith. The greatest evangelist of the 20th century, Dr. Billy Graham, also said, Christianity grew because its adherents were not silent. They said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Nor did they stop with expressing the great faith that they had found, but they stormed against the evils of their day until the very foundations of decadent Rome started to crumble. You know, here in North Carolina, we are all too familiar with hurricanes, are we not? Fresh on our minds still are Fran and Floyd and Isabel and the remnants of other hurricanes. But a hurricane, a warm, calm center around which fierce winds blow, offer to us an excellent picture of what Christianity is supposed to be. Without question, there has to be the eye of the storm, that calm, evangelical, spiritual center, if you will, which involves one's personal relationship to Jesus Christ. That has to be the center. But a Christian must also have the winds that impact the world around him or her. We must emerge from that part of our faith which is experiential in nature and address the social and moral issues of our time. Unfortunately, the failure of liberal social action by mainline churches back in the 1960s was that it was essentially all wind and no center. It didn't contain the teaching of the necessity of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was in many respects, I believe, just socialism with a religious veneer. But today, my friends, most evangelical churches have just the opposite problem. We have emphasized the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ without emphasizing that that relationship ought to result in efforts to change our world for Christ. And it's all a calm, warm, fuzzy, feel-good center with no wind and it passes over the land and it changes nothing. I suggest to you that if we are to be the transformers of our society that God has called us to be, we must live out both aspects of the spiritual hurricane. We must have both the eye of personal piety, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ combined with the winds of cultural impact. My brethren, as the redeemed of God, this is our great purpose. This is what gives meaning 
to our existence. A point of personal privilege. Approximately four years ago, my daughter presented to my wife and I our very first grandchild, Camden Joel Crocker. Now, have you know that's the finest boy on the face of the earth. I am a granddaddy who is eat up with it. I am not being melodramatic, however, when I tell you. I'm being most sincere. But there are times when I have taken Camden into my arms and I've become emotional. Because I start to think about what kind of society we are leaving to Camden and his generation. And my friends, I tell you the great liberties that you and I have always enjoyed and taken for granted are in such great jeopardy that I fear that by the time Camden is a grown man, those liberties won't be there. They may indeed not be there because our great liberties are built upon great moral premise that comes straight out of the word of God, the Judeo-Christian ethic. And have you noticed, have you noticed that the more we get away from that great moral compass, the Bible, the Word of God, the more that we move away and get God out of the picture, the more divided we become as a people. So that we are simply a culture of this group of people and that group of people and this group of people all fighting one another continually to see whose values will prevail. And I suggest to you there is no hope for us to be one nation again under God until the church with strong limbs and strong mind and strong spirit stands up and addresses the great evils of our time. And please don't try to give me that long and overused, most tired argument that we Christians ought not to be involved in the political process Besides, you can't legislate morality anyway. Well, my friends, I want to tell you something. I had a senator pull me aside in the hall one time, very angry with me because I was opposing his bill. And he said to me, Reverend, let me tell you something. I want to know. I want to know from you right now. He said, tell me, when are people like you going to realize that you can't legislate morality? And I said to him, Senator, may I make a suggestion to you? I suggest to you that we can't legislate anything but morality. All legislation, I said, is the codification of some moral premise. It is the means by which as a society we say this is right and this is wrong. And that there's such a moral consensus about this being right or this being wrong that we've drawn parameters to say that if you violate those parameters, we're either going to fine you, penalize you, or throw you in jail. So the real question, I said, Senator, is 
Whose morality are we legislating? My friends, I tell you this. Every public policy decision, every piece of legislation that is codified into law is the imposition of somebody's value system on all of us. And one of the reasons why this great country of ours is experiencing the moral meltdown that it's currently experiencing is because the church has been so disengaged from the political process. We have created a vacuum that wicked people have filled and they are legislating their morality. And there is but one hope There is but one hope for this great nation and for the great state of North Carolina. And that is for the church to once again engage and be the church and hold up that godly moral standard for all to see and call upon those who make the laws and those who make the policies to fashion their law according to the great and eternal law, the law of God. We can experience the joy of a life full of meaning and purpose. if we're willing to obey these two great mandates of God. The Great Commission, winning people to Jesus Christ, and the cultural mandate, bringing the will of God to bear upon all of culture. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you first with some saddened and burdened hearts. For as we look over our lives and as we carefully consider much of what we've done as the church, we recognize that we have fallen short, utterly short. We pray for grace once again to take up our cross and follow the Savior. We pray that we would share the gospel with those who need to hear it. We pray, O Lord, that we would bring your will to bear upon all of life. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a purpose and a meaning. And we would embrace it and know true fulfillment in life. In Christ's name and for His sake.